Am I on? Yeah. We, uh, we're now a week out from Easter. And uh, as I tried to explain last week, and uh, really it's kind of come up a, a bunch of times now, uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, that was pretty earth-shattering for his disciples and for, therefore, anybody that his disciples would encounter, uh, really from then on. That nobody expected the Messiah to die, for starters, and nobody definitely expected the Messiah to be raised from the dead. And actually, belief in resurrection, the fact that somebody could be alive, die, and then be raised from the dead was pretty rare in the first century, and really it's, it's a small group, uh, really a subset of Jewish people that believed that. But they all believed that resurrection would be something that happened like at the end of time on the last day or something like that. So the idea of somebody being raised from the dead in the interim was very, very hard to grasp. Now, if I can just make a quick plug, Pastor's Bible Study 945 uh, this morning, we're going to take a deep dive um, into this idea of resurrection, and we're actually going to start way in the Old Testament and work our way up. And I, I promise you there will be stuff here that you've never uh, heard before. And what we're actually going to do almost by accident is develop a kind of um, what would be called like an apologetic, a, a way of demonstrating the validity of our faith in somebody who was raised from the dead, but kind of by accident. And if that intrigues you, please check it out. If you're watching online, um, the pastor's Bible study is also being streamed. Uh, I think you have to go to the website. Phil set that up. I don't really know how it works, but um, I'm sure you can figure it out. So, plug aside, uh, the disciples at this point, a week after Jesus was raised from the dead, are still very much trying to figure things out. Uh, and not only that, but based on the fact that they are hiding, means that they are still in danger. <clears throat> we tend to think of uh, the disciples as being cowardly, that they kind of ran away once Jesus was arrested. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's 100% fair, because in reality, if uh, really the Roman officials, um, by means of the uh, chief priests, were taking out the uh, head of a movement, well, the next people they're going after are his inner circle. So they have to hide. <clears throat> and if you notice, Jesus appears, and of course, they seem a little confused by this. He shows them uh, his wounds. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the sins of any, they are not forgiven. And that's, by the way, earlier in the service when I said, as I called an ordained servant of Christ or whatever variation I said, I don't remember. It's printed, so I don't have to remember. Uh, I therefore forgive you of your sins. It's because of that. It's because the church designates people who have that authority. The authority is ultimately in God's word, I am not special, but it comes directly from that moment. But apparently Thomas wasn't there. And that should lead us to ask why. Uh, 
Unfortunately, we can't say for certain. What we can say is what little we know or are able to gather about Thomas. He appears earlier in the Gospel of John, right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, again, uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead is not full-on resurrection in the same sense that Jesus is, because Lazarus died, unless he's alive somewhere today, which would be weird. But anyway, uh, right before Jesus travels to just right around Jerusalem to raise Lazarus because he gets word that Lazarus is sick, his disciples are like, slow down. Jesus, you do know that they're going to try to kill you, right? And Jesus is being obstinate uh, or really just motivated by the mission God gave him. And so then Thomas says to his fellow brothers, his disciples, well, let's go and die with him. That's pretty bold words. I don't detect any sarcasm or something like that there. I think he meant it. So, somebody who was, who, who was willing to say, all right, well, let's just go and die with him, for him to be absent might suggest that when Jesus was killed, for him, that was it. Like, after that, who cares? This Messiah, to know that he was then brutally executed, well, everything that he had built his life around just fell apart. So, who cares? I'll see you guys later. I'm out. This is too much. I suggest that something like that makes a fair amount of sense. But then Thomas makes his way back. Again, we don't know the circumstances. We can fill in a little bit, but it's more so just imagination and speculation, which is a little dangerous. But when he makes it back to the disciples, the rest of the disciples, his brothers, they say, we have seen the Lord. And he basically says, no, you haven't. I don't buy it. That's ridiculous. Why would you say something like that? And you know what? Thomas is perfectly reasonable for saying that. Because again, even though his disciples were hanging out with Jesus for a couple of years, and he told them a couple of times, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised, they still didn't get it. And the rest of the disciples have the advantage of having already seen Jesus. So when Thomas says, unless I see those scars and I can put my finger in them, which is kind of gross, uh, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And it's really like, it's emphatic language. Um, it's, uh, it's more like, I will continue not believing. So that's how that scene ends. And I don't blame Thomas a second. I think the, the thing, well, you're just a doubting Thomas, you're doubting Thomas. No, 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 I would say maybe like a reasonable Thomas. You know, I get it. It's right to be skeptical when you are confronted with a claim that someone you know died is now alive again. Because that 
doesn't really happen. So, eight days later, Thomas and the disciples are hanging out, and then poof, Jesus appears, even though the doors are locked. Notice that little detail that John slips in. And the best explanation I have for that is that the resurrected Jesus is weird. <laughs> like something about his physicality, and we'll learn over the next couple of weeks, that he is still very much physical. This is not a ghost or an apparition or something. The ancients and even the New Testament writers had perfectly good language to describe that. They do not use that language here. That even though the doors are locked, Jesus still appears. He's still as physical as ever, and maybe even more so. And he appears to Thomas and says, here are my wounds. Don't disbelieve, but now believe. And then Thomas responds, by the way, with the most concise declaration yet of who Jesus is. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas never actually touched Jesus. I know all of like the classical works of art and and really in, you know, in popular culture and in media and stuff like that, they always show Je- or Thomas touching Jesus, taking him up on his offer. But the language suggests he didn't. It's, uh, you know, it says, and he replied, my Lord and my God. In, in Greek, it's apokrino. It's, it's uh, he replied, and it's like immediate. It, it doesn't really leave room for space between the thing that w- happened before that and then that response. It's, it's very quick. It's immediate. And so Thomas never touches Jesus, even though Jesus offered him everything that he had asked for, which is curious. It's almost like Jesus calls his bluff or something like that. Um, but actually not really, not even remotely. So, as, as I've kind of been meditating on this for the last week or so, um, I noticed one thing that Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, how could you not believe? He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith which is definitely a thing that Jesus says to his disciples prior to the resurrection. In fact, for Thomas's doubts, he just takes them seriously. He's not offended. Jesus doesn't strike me as the insecure type. In fact, he just takes his doubts seriously. Which leads me to a question. If Jesus just takes Thomas's doubts seriously, not in judgment or anything like that, I know. Um, <clears throat> children in a service is always awesome. Uh, it, like, yeah, I mean, seriously, I worry about churches that don't have children um, like in their service. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, so maybe this is just like stepping on a soapbox for a second. If you have children, please bring them. They are welcome. They are wonderful, and they are loved here. It doesn't 
really matter how loud they are in the service. Um, anyway, what was I talking about? <laughs> I do have ADHD, so here we go. Um, right, so it leads me to a question that if Jesus just takes Thomas' doubt seriously, um, why do we, as the church or in the church, not do the same with our own doubts or with people outside the church who are struggling with their own doubts? In other, <laughs> in other words, doubt is a very normal part of faith. We are making a claim that God raised somebody from the dead and is so transformed he will never die again. That's a really big claim. And if somebody has a hard time believing it, I want to say, welcome, there's a club, it's called the church, you are welcome to join. Uh, to, uh, to, to kind of borrow from St. Augustine, who really is one of like the most important figures in the church's 2,000 years of history. Um, there, there are things that we do and say and ways that we think about God, our faith, and the Bible itself that draw a direct line to St. Augustine. And he, if I may paraphrase, said that the God that we have figured out or the God that we understand is by definition not God. Instead, it's like something of our own making. Doubt is, is instead very, very human and very normal. Which I think is at play here. When Jesus just offers himself to Thomas, he's like, I get it. And then he says something else. He says, uh, you, you see and you believe. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. That's us. I've never seen Jesus. I suspect you have not either. Which then takes us to the next step. That doubt is normal. Doubt is a part of faith. It's part of humanity, really. And on the other hand, faith is a gift. We believe, we teach, we confess that when we are baptized into our faith, we receive the, the, the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we actually receive the gift of, excuse me, of faith. It, it's not this thing that we have to like take our fingers and hook them in and grab and grip as though like uh, so that our, our knuckles are turning white and, and, and get very, very angry if something seems to confront it or it seems like it's going to be a problem or something like that because then we're not treating it like a gift. We're treating it like, it's something that we have to do in order to be loved by God. But that's not faith. That's something else entirely. So when God raised Jesus from the dead and really blew everybody's mind, he started this process of new creation 
creation, and human beings really uh, as they were meant to be. Given this gift of faith, not that faith is something that we do so that God will love us, but God loves us and then gives us this faith. We struggle with our doubts. We're making really big claims here. We are ultimately held by Jesus. The one, the Son of God, who is okay with the doubts and struggles that life brings. Who holds us rather than us having to hold Him. And we as members of the church, who one of the founding members, Thomas himself, within a week is going, I don't believe this, is now hailed as one of our heroes. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself struggling with doubt or trying to make sense of what God is doing or where we are or what the heck is, heck, quote, is happening here. You're in good company. It's called the church. And you're in good hands. You're in Jesus' hands. Amen. I invite you to rise.